As we come back together this morning, we are, we are near the end. Uh, only one week uh, of minor prophets left, and uh, it's been quite a, a 12 weeks. Uh, it's been, uh, hopefully, encouraging uh, to go through a section of Scripture that is uh, perhaps less uh, familiar to us, certainly has stretched us in our uh, reading of God's Word to hear the heart of God, uh, a God who deeply loves His creation and His people, and the righteous anger that comes when His people both ignore Him and become means by which oppression and injustice and immorality and greed become the order of the day. And God has come in some of the strongest language. In fact, these are often the books that make us as modern uh, people the least comfortable with God. How can God speak of the violence uh, as his means of bringing justice uh, when that violence is so stark, so brutal, uh, and troubling? We have had to rest in and wrestle with God being God and a recognition that his justice is proportional to the sin and rebellion of humanity. This morning we come to the book of Joel. We are somewhere in the uh, late 500 B.C.s. Uh, most scholars uh, contend that this is after the second temple is at least functioning. We don't know how complete the building of it is, but Joel speaks of the work of the temple and the offerings going forth, uh, the function of the priests on behalf of God's people, but he makes no mention of a king. And there is a sense there that uh, this is part of the post-exilic back in Israel after the Babylonian captivity, time for God's people. It is a time that uh, Joel feels and is led by the Lord to remind God's people of what they've been through, to call them again to repentance and the ongoing work of repentance, and to remind them that that repentance gives them uh, a perspective when you turn around and see the glory of your God, you can begin to see the promises. You can begin to see the hope of God's covenant faithfulness and his restoration of Israel and the extension of that to all nations as he pours out his blessing. Interestingly enough, Joel does not make a reference to any of the particular sins that we have uh, reviewed over the course of our uh, study. He seems to expect that we are well informed. In fact, he is uh, the prophet who quotes the most from the other prophets. He ha clearly has Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea in his mind as he comes and brings this word again to God's people. This morning, I am going to read uh, Joel chapter 2, verses 12. I'm going to go ahead and read through verse 17. And this is God's call through Joel for repentance. And we're going to spend some time this morning reflecting on the difference between repentance and its somewhat anemic replacement, this notion of feeling sorry. So let's put God's word 
before us. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rent your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering, a drink offering for the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would continue to strengthen us even as you come to us with words that are both warnings and calls to fellowship and peace. We pray, Lord, that you would again bless the preaching of your word, guard it by your spirit, and whatever is said this morning that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, as parents, uh, we find ourselves often in situations, if we have uh, more than one child, but sometimes it works uh, also with the interrelationship between parent and child. But but let's take the example where uh, one daughter decides that she's going to either take or uh, remove or uh, fight with her sibling, right? And then she gets caught. In our bell household, we, we, we say that you get caught because, bells always get caught because God loves you. He loves you enough to make sure you get caught every time. But the child is, is caught, and you come back, and, and it, all too often in our parenting, our response is, tell your sister you're sorry. And then inevitably, to make this whole thing go away, uh, through grudging, perhaps, uh, teeth, I'm sorry. And then you turn to the other child and you say, now tell your sister or brother that you forgive them. I forgive you. And then we feel like we've done something and then they go off and, uh, and then we do it again later. And oftentimes, the idea of being sorry is wrapped around the fact that I'm sorry that I have to go through this. I'm sorry that I got caught. I'm sorry that I'm now having to stand here with you in front of this. I'm sorry that I'm embarrassed. And I'm really sorry that this is taking so long. Because sorry usually has to do with what's happening to me in the midst of the brokenness and fallenness and sin of the world. Whether I brought it upon myself, whether it's being done to me. But sorry has a rather personal focus. And it is about the escape of the uncomfortableness of the moment. It is a poor uh, substitute for the biblical expectation 
of repentance. Sorry allows me and my children to continue to go in a particular direction. I'm still going to head this way, but I'm sorry if it's unfortunate or problematic for you. But I'm still headed this way. God's call to repentance, as we all know, the the word itself means to turn and to head in a different direction. It understands that the way I'm going is harmful to myself, is a rebellion against God, and it is harmful to those around me because no sin happens in isolation. There is no such thing as a sin that doesn't have repercussions for others. It is a lie and a notion, a handy one, I wish it were true, that I can sin without my sin impacting those around me. Even the secret sins that others don't know that I am wrestling with can have an impact. It's so interesting in a family where lying is uh, not known but being practiced how hard truth is for those that don't even know that they're being lied to. And they themselves lie. We learn things through osmosis, the impact of sin often far-reaching. And so when we come to this illustration of a child being taught to say that they're sorry and the inadequacy of it, and Joel's response that as he raises again the goodness of God, a God who is warning his people, a God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, a God who has, yes, absolutely allowed the nation to be ravaged by both real locusts and metaphorical locusts that he is a God who desires to restore his people and have them turn to him. That repentance has a couple of components this morning that are far richer and deeper than the sense of sorrow that has been whittled down now even to simply sorry. First, Verse 13, it is a renting of the heart first and foremost. It is, as we always say in the church, but we need to remind ourselves, an issue of the heart. It has been said well by others that what I love determines what I do. That the idols of the heart are really the beginning place of any sin. So whatever I love more than God is the thing that leads me into sin And I'm sorry if it hurts you, but that's really what my heart wants. The heart wants what the heart wants, as Woody Allen so tragically and horrifically said when he married uh, his adopted daughter. It is not okay. And the heart simply wanting something doesn't make that thing valuable or true or right. And so it is a changing of our hearts. It is the promise of Ezekiel, it's the promise of Jeremiah that a heart of flesh would beat in line with the heart of God. Our loves themselves change. And so, yes, there is a reality that outward activity, the weeping, the recognition that there are times of fasting, that there is a physical manifestation to repentance that bears some of the weight of appreciating our sin is right and good. Interestingly enough, Joel doesn't dismiss outward acts of repentance, 
But in the heart of it and in the midst of it, he reaffirms the notion that all of that will be pointless if your heart is not dealt with. Jesus brings this up in Matthew 23 when he talks about the tithe. And he says, you've done a great job. You bring your mint and your tithes. What you haven't done is given your heart. Change your heart and bring your tithe. It is a matter of the heart. The second aspect of repentance in Joel centers around the corporate nature of it. So what does Joel say? Again, I mean, why would you want children to hear all of the confessions of sin? And isn't it kind of awkward when a bunch of people are weeping and renting their clothes and confessing uh, corporately the, the corporate sins of God's people, their individual sins? It just seems like that would give them a bad idea. Right? We have all these rationales for why corporate confession is a bad idea. And in fact, one of the most challenging things often with texts like this is to recognize God saying that the corporate sin of God's people, our collective embracing of materialism, of oppression, of uh, sexism, fill in the blank, our corporate identity is something we corporately confess. He doesn't say... All of you should grab your children, put your child over here in a box by themselves, and they confess by themselves, and then you go over here and you confess, and don't let the two of you know what you're confessing, and do it all individually and vertically. There is, throughout the 500-year history of these prophets, a regular theme that corporately we have guilt. Why are you bringing a nursing child? Has that child really had an opportunity to worship Baal yet? Why bring the children? I understand why the elders are on the hook. I understand why the priests are on the hook. But exactly why is the whole community called out to an act of repentance? I want to suggest that part of the way that we begin to see our children respond differently to the call to repentance is if they know increasingly that they are a part of a community of those who are repenting. One of the greatest challenges in the American church is to fully and publicly embrace repentance for our sins. We have occasionally said we were sorry. Sorry about that 400 years of slavery. It was a bad idea, but we're good now, right? All the laws are evil. I mean, they were evil. Now they're even, and so let's just stop talking about the past because that's no good. Let's just talk about the future. The repentance doesn't work that way. It acknowledges that things were stolen. I don't know how you repay 400 years of stolen labor, but there's a corporate guilt because the church propagated it as a reasonable thing to do. There are ways in which as we wrestle at this moment with how to interact with those who are wrestling with same-sex attraction and those who are gay and we're trying to hold up the biblical reality that these things are not in line with the original created order and that they are a part of the consequences of the fall as is are so many other confused hearts and emotions and loves and identities. And at the same time, I rarely hear the church say, and we repent of the fact 
that we took small measures of delight when AIDS was ravaging your community. And it was all fun and games until it started to be translated into our children through blood transfusions. And then we thought it would be a good idea to work on a cure. We forget the seven years where the church praised God for judging before we realize that that plague could come and sit on us all. And that shouldn't make us feel uh, a quick sense of sorrow or guilt, but what does it look like to collectively as a people say, we don't have the best record of loving the other? How do we engage, not in losing the truth of what God is, but coming in humility and repentance, renting our garments before our friends and our neighbors, saying, we have not often, as God has called us to, embrace the ethics of the kingdom in the spirit of 1 Corinthians 13 in humility. That we have come in strength and in arrogance, in religious superiority, Condemning the single mother, condemning the lazy, or at least the person we thought was lazy because they're different than us. It might be hard for a child to know what repentance looks like when we maintain a value of our church and our culture, right or wrong. The worst thing you can do is admit your failure. We see it in the challenge of acknowledging the brokenness in ministers, the cover-ups of failures of the church and caring for congregants. It's hard for us to admit. We are sorry for what has happened to so many. What the world wants to know and what that awkward quote from Nietzsche on the front of your worship folder reinforces is will we repent and head in a different direction? Do we really feel that all we need are a couple of adjustments? A couple of women reading scripture reaffirms the fact that we don't just think that women are um, weaker in some way that they need to be covered. How do we repent as a people? Does the strength of what we read in the assurance of pardon every week give us the courage and sure knowledge that the world will respect and know the truth of who God is when we ourselves are the most broken people in our communities? Dependent upon the strength of God and not our own righteousness. Not being right, not being theologically right, not being morally right, but by being those redeemed in Christ. That has rarely returned void in this world. And what if then our children, living in communities where repentance is a part of the very interaction of one another, realize that it is not simply that they need to be sorry, but it is their own selfishness that has led to their treatment of their sibling, and therefore they need to rent their hearts and they see their parents confessing their fears and their tendencies towards self-preservation and protectionism. And therefore, they can be more honest that they just stole that toy because they wanted to. And they know 
that that is a life and a direction that they will feel sorry for their whole lives as they hurt one person after another. But that there is freedom and repentance and heading and caring for your siblings. So what would it look like perhaps to say instead of, I'm sorry, what if the response was, go clean your sister's room. Go put her plates in the dishwasher. Learn to serve her as you tried to serve yourself by taking. We will help you learn what repentance is by learning how to serve. Not simply an I'm sorry, but I am your servant. And what does it look like then for the church to wrestle with its endorsement of so many awkward and horrible things in our history? To recognize, not out of guilt, but out of repentance, what does it look like for us to serve corporately as God's people? There's so much joy, there's so much freedom in it. And we know this because, and this is where we have to end uh, this morning, is this wonderful passage of the promise of God's blessing on his repentant and joyful and exuberant people, we have to go to uh, chapter 2, 28 and 29, this amazing, amazing poem about the promise of God's blessing, so wonderfully fulfilled out in Pentecost. And I shall, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men visions. And even on my male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth. Blood and fire, columns of smoke. The presence of God poured out mighty and powerfully. That's where we live. What are we afraid of? What power is ours to live as Christ did, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant? Could we perhaps radically change our understanding of what it is to say I'm sorry when we acknowledge that we came first not to serve, uh, to be served, but to serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. Uh, Lord, we know that when we repent, when we get out of that pigsty, you meet us with fresh raiment. Lord, give us the strength in whatever ways, individually and corporately, to trust the goodness of our God, to be willing to see where and how we too can know afresh what it is to be forgiven, what it is to be at peace with you. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless your church in this nation and around the world as it in ever greater degrees desires to live humbly before its God and before a watching world. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.